A few years ago, I began a new spiritual journey. I was raised a Christian, but tired of my confusion and denying my gifts, I decided to take a new path of discovery and internal growth. Along the way, one thing I realized was how many others are in a similar place in their lives, knowing there's more, but stuck in their own conditioning or doubt. So I decided to start this podcast as a way of vocalizing the things I was learning. But then it became something more. I decided to blend my own quest for self-discovery with a deep dive into the fascinating world of Cajun culture. We'll unravel the unexpected connections between these two paths and how they play a unique role in guiding us towards healing and growth, hopefully while offering insights and inspiration. I'm Heather, and this is Soulful Wonderings with the Pretend Cajun. Are you coming along for the ride? So for today's episode, I'm going to back up a little bit to a post that's on the Pretend Cajun website and, you know, add a little bit more. Let me explain a couple things a little bit, I guess. I'm actually from North Louisiana, very much redneck country. And for most of my life growing up, South Louisiana was a bit of a different world to me. It was flat. You could see for miles. The food was hella spicy. And seeing an alligator actually wasn't that out of the ordinary. And they talked funny. But the accents were actually kind of mesmerizing to me. And I could actually listen to them talk all day. So I moved to Baton Rouge after college and I met my husband there. And he was from Lafayette. And after, I guess, almost 20 years, we decided to move to his home. And, of course, he wanted to show me around. So he would take me to the different popular places around town, the the places the area is known for, I guess. He wanted me to kind of start to get an idea of what the area was all about. One of the first places we went was Avery Island. So, of course, a fairly typical conversation happened between the two of us. You know, I'm asking, oh, where is it? He says, well, it's down near New Iberia. And I'm like, it's an island? He said, yeah. Are we going on a boat? And he said, no. I went, okay, I think I'm going to need a little more information. How are we going to an island without going in the water? I mean, the literal definition of an island is a piece of land surrounded by water. And he got this kind of look on his face. And he goes, yeah, I know, but this isn't like that. And I'm like, then how is it an island? And by the way, the longer I've been here, the more I see that look. I've lost count of how many times um, the thing that's being described to me is, well, it's different here. You know, case in point, it's an island, but not the way you think of an island. It kind of seems to be par for the course in Cajun country. Yeah, it's like that, but it's different here. Anyway, I was like, okay, I'm on board. Tell me about this island. Its actual name is in French, and I know I'm going to butcher it, but don't come for me because I don't speak French, but I'm going to try it. It's Il Petit Anse. Now, how is it an island? Well, instead of water, it's surrounded by a salt marsh, a cypress swamp, and bayous. So basically, it's an island in the sense that it's at a higher elevation 
um, relative to the land or terrain that surrounds it. In fact, at its highest point, it's 163 feet above sea level, which is actually the highest on the Gulf Coast. But why is it so high, you ask? Well, salt. Yeah, I said salt. It's a salt dome. <laughs> so, of course, I immediately wanted to know, well, it's a salt dome. So I looked it up. And according to geology.com, a salt dome is a mound or column of salt that has intruded upwards into overlying sediments. Salt domes can form in a sedimentary basin where a thick layer of salt is overlain by younger sediments of significant thickness. Okay. The thing that was really cool is that this process probably started about 165 million years ago. So, you know, it's kind of been there a while. And what was even cooler as I got into this was Avery Island actually isn't the only one. There are four others that are actually in this area. One is Jefferson Island, Weeks Island, and then there's one... It's spelled C-O-T-E, and it's got the hat over the O. Um, my husband said he thought it was Cote Blanche Island, but um, Google Translate Lady says that it's um, Cote Blanche Island. So I'm not exactly sure which way you technically pronounce it. And then there's also Bell Island. But why is this important? Well, because salt mining was big business and it started as business back in 1862. And in fact, Avery Island was a big target during the Civil War because they were providing salt to several of the southern states. And of course, the northern states, I don't think they had any salt. So this was a big deal for them. And of course, the other valuable thing about a salt dome is that it can act as a petroleum trap. So um, petroleum and natural gas production was, well, and is still big business as well. Can you believe there's more to the story, though? Of course there is. And of course, I was still intrigued after finding out all this information. So what makes this island so special? And it was, well, Tabasco. It was like Tabasco, the hot sauce, the hot sauce that's known worldwide and probably in your pantry right now or on your table or I know you've seen it on a table at just about every restaurant you've ever been to and you're going to tell me that this is made on Avery Island this little place that's outside of New Iberia South Louisiana I'm like you're joking right nope that's where it is so who knew salt production would be such a big business well Edmund McElhaney for one Okay, I'm going to give you kind of the short version of the story. Mr. McElhaney married Mary Eliza Avery, and after the Civil War, he lived with her and her family on Avery Island. And, well, quite frankly, he found the post-war food a bit bland. So he decided to create a pepper-based sauce to kind of give things some flavor. The basic ingredients of the sauce are aged red peppers, natural vinegar, and salt mined right there on the island. And there you go. You have Tabasco. Now, of course, as I was doing research on some of this, I was looking for the origin 
of Tabasco, and I couldn't really find a definitive origin. Um, it was said that there's a region in Mexico of the same name, and it's believed to mean, quote, place where the soil is humid, end quote. And there are some that say that the peppers grown on the island actually have a different flavor than ones that are grown other places, and that it's because of the soil. And of course, that's part of what gives Tabasco its um, unique and amazing taste. Now, as the story goes, Edmund McElhaney was given seeds of a certain kind of pepper. And please forgive me if I say this wrong. I'm going to try. Capsicum frutishens. And these were the types of peppers. And that's how his journey began. And of course, this is according to Tabasco's history. They say that the first commercial crop of peppers was grown in 1868. And then McElhaney secured his patent in 1870. And then by the late 1870s, Tabasco was being sold throughout the U.S. and in Europe. And now it's actually sold internationally in 195 countries. And this I thought was fascinating. It has actually been part of the rations for the U.S. military since the 1980s. How cool is that? So, of course, part of making sure that the Tabasco has that amazing taste that you're looking for, you want to make sure that the peppers are properly ripe. So, did you know that the workers in the fields, in the pepper fields, would use this little red stick, la petite baton rouge, that they would compare to the color of the peppers to know when it was ripe and ready to pick. Then after that, they would make this special mash that was created from the peppers, and then it was aged for up to three years in white oak barrels. One thing I found fascinating was the first time we ever went down there, those barrels were decommissioned Jack Daniels barrels. Now, of course, the last time I went, they didn't have the Jack Daniels markings anymore, so they may not be using those anymore, but I just thought that was absolutely fascinating, and what a great um, recycling program um, to use those decommissioned barrels. Now, at the time of this recording, it's been about 150 years, and there are now nine varieties of the sauce available, but the process and the recipe and even that little red stick are still things that they use today. It's all been passed down through the generations and there are still family members that are at the company today. There are actually many families who have lived on the island for generations as well, not to mention the jobs and community impact that the mines and the island have had on the area. Visitors are welcome at Avery Island. You can tour the Tabasco Museum. You can also go through the facility and see where the mash is stored and see the bottling process. Um, there are some pepper plants on display to show you the variety that's grown there. And I have to tell you, my OCD brain loved the barrel warehouse. It's just rows and rows of these neatly placed barrels that are aging. It's, it was amazing. I loved every minute. But heads up, the smell in there will absolutely open your sinuses. So just be warned. <laughs> and of course, there's a store with a variety of products that you can purchase. You know, bottles of 
Tabasco or just part of it too. There's all manner of merchandise you can get there. You can even grab lunch at the Cafe 1868, which is right next door to the museum. Um, I would say it's pretty typical Southern cuisine and all of it has a touch of that famous Tabasco flavor. So at this point, you may be thinking, that's really neat and that the story's over. It's not. Edmund's son, Edward, was actually a dedicated conservationist and founded an expansive conservation effort on the island that is now called the Jungle Gardens. And the crazy thing is, many people that head to the island, they head over to Tabasco and they don't really even notice the Jungle Gardens or really know what it is and they really are missing out. Edmund began transforming his estate into the lush gardens and eventually opened it to the public in 1935. And he continued growing this area until it reached the over, what, 170 acres that it is today. But the jungle gardens really started with Edward's love of birds. He created what's called Bird City, which is an aviary for snowy egrets. And he started that in 1895. Story goes that he raised eight snowy egrets in captivity and then released them, hoping that they would return. And y'all, they did. And today, when you visit the Jungle Gardens, there's an observation tower that's by the lagoon. And you can look over the lagoon and see these large wooden platforms that make up Bird City. You'll see the egrets starting to return around late January each year. And that's where they start to build their nest and get ready for their eggs to hatch. Word is there have been as many as 100,000 egrets on the island at a time. So I'm telling you that rookery is quite a sight to see when the egrets are there nesting. It's also said that Edward collected plants from all over the world um, research said specifically Southeast Asia. So there are plants all over this island that you won't find them in a local nursery. And of course, my favorite part is when the azaleas and the camellias are in bloom. I mean, the colors are just so vibrant. And of course, you can find them on various parts of the island. You know, it was also said that Edward cultivated more than a hundred varieties of camellias. Oh my goodness, it, it's hard to even imagine that many varieties and different colors. He also um, cultivated over 64 varieties of bamboo. That was part of a cooperative effort with the USDA. But of course, as you walk the island or drive the island, you'll see bamboo, different types of bamboo growing in different places. There's also a wisteria arch that you can actually drive underneath when it is in full bloom oh my goodness it is a sight to behold the truth is that the flowers the vegetation the flora and the fauna that's on this island it's so beautiful and it's so meticulously preserved it's it's really hard to describe and explain but it is such such a beautiful sight and something I believe everyone should see. 
And then there's the oaks. There's so many oaks. There's actually one that's named the Cleveland Oak. It was actually named for Grover Cleveland, who visited the McElhaney family on the island at one time. It's estimated that many of the oaks there are over 400 years old. So those happen naturally. They weren't planted. And I tell you what, there are almost too many to count. And to say that they are big and beautiful just really doesn't do it justice. And you know, all of this is before we've even talked about the Asian gardens. If you've ever heard of Avery Island or maybe seen some pictures of Avery Island, you may be aware of the Buddha. <laughs> yeah, there's a Buddha in South Louisiana. Okay, this is how the story goes that I found. Okay, they said a rebel general stole the Buddha from a Chinese temple and then he brought it to New York to sell it. Well, problem was, problem for him, was he got caught <laughs> by the Chinese and of course they killed him. Um... But a couple of investor friends of McElhaney's, they found it at an auction and they bought it for him. This was in 1936. They evidently thought he needed a Buddha that's over 900 years old for his garden. I mean, who knew? <laughs> so they put it on a rail car and they sent it to him. But the Buddha was actually given a place of honor. It's actually inside a beautiful glass shrine uh, it's atop a small hill. It's one of seven hills of knowledge that McElhaney built around the statue. And he built an Asian-style garden befitting the Buddha that includes, there's a small pond and a stone-arched bridge. Um, it's, it's absolutely beautiful and so peaceful. Um, I'm told there are even times when um, people from the local Buddhist community will visit the Buddha for um, prayers or, you know, perhaps a ceremony of some kind. So it's absolutely stunning and, and so much more than I think you would expect when you hear about it. And in fact, many of the, um, I'm going to call them attractions that are in the gardens, the stops along the way in the garden, have an Asian influence. Um, there's the sunken gardens and there's also the palm gardens. Of course, that includes um, some palms and some cacti that Edward wanted to plant. And it's really fun when you're there. You'll often see people there taking their senior portraits or maybe bridals or, or family photos. I mean, it's hard to resist. Those backdrops of those gardens are just absolutely stunning. And there's a five-mile loop that you can drive and it sort of winds around all the oaks and the azaleas and the lagoons. So it sort of allows you to take it all in. Of course, if you wish, there's some small, uh, shorter walking trails that you can take. And even the driving, as you go, there are places you can stop and, and look at the different gardens and attractions and whatnot as you go through. If you're able, visit. It is so worth it. And I have to tell you, it just fills my heart with such, such happiness that Edward McElhaney sought to preserve these jungle gardens with such love and passion. He created this space that's served generations and, and 
will most likely continue to serve generations to come. And it's a place that you can not only enjoy, but where people are inclined to study all of the different plants that he brought into the area. So, of course, as you can imagine, the island and the family, they've had quite an impact on the community. I mean, I've always been impressed by their preservation efforts with the jungle gardens, but I actually recently learned that they're doing even more. Um, I think this is more specifically on the Tabasco side, but, you know, they're working to reduce the amount of water that they use. And according to reports I've seen, they actually have, I think it was by 11%. Um, they also support local farmers. You know, they provide them with the pepper seeds and give them technical support that they may need. Um, they recycle, like we talked about, what about those oak barrels? Y'all, they reuse those for up to 50 years. That's a long time. That's a lot of, uh, multi-purpose use there. And of course they source materials that they need as close to the island as they possibly can, which of course reduces fuel emissions and things like that. Like this family is still involved in the company and their goal from what I can tell is to be around for another 150 years or even more. One sad bit of news in all of this was that the salt mines on the island were actually closed permanently in 2020. There was a collapse and sadly um, two men were killed in that collapse. So they did decide to close the mines. Um, a company called Cargill, you've probably heard of them, um, actually ran the mines at the time. And one of the things they did was ramp up their operations at their plant in Brobridge after the closure. Um, I couldn't find much more about what happened after. But, I mean, it's evident that that closure was felt in that community. Um, the Avery and McElhaney families aren't the only ones with attachments and history there. You know, many families have been part of that history. You know, the farmers and the mine workers and really in a variety of ways. So... Um, that's a big change to such an embedded business. One thing I find really funny and interesting about all this is there are times when I'll tell people, you know, oh yeah, I'm headed to Avery Island for the day. And sometimes I get this really funny look like, why? And of course, my answer is usually to go shoot new pictures. But the truth is, I just love it. And I go often. But I guess it makes sense in a way that many of the people that live in the area, they're just so used to it that maybe they don't look at it in the same way. I mean, it's just there. It's always been there. And I don't know that they really see it as anything special. It's just where people work. And like I said, it's down the road. But I find that interesting how that can happen, how we let something become so commonplace in our lives that we lose sight of the beauty and the significance um, it's almost like we're looking at it with eyes that have sort of dulled maybe but let me tell you something when you walk onto that island jungle gardens in particular it's like you're in a different world and time outside that moment just doesn't exist anymore you're surrounded by this natural beauty that I really have difficulty putting into words. You can almost forget where you are on a pretty spring day in the south as you walk along the lagoon and feel the sun on your face as it 
filters through Spanish moss that's almost dripping from the majestic oaks. Many of them have limbs so massive that they touch the ground and they just, they look inviting as if you could just sit on a branch that's perfectly shaped for lounging all day, lost in your thoughts or watching a lazy alligator swim along or a turtle sun himself on a log, sometimes even a deer grazing at the water's edge. Just marveling at the beauty that surrounds you and grateful for those that work so hard to create it. Avery Island and the Jungle Gardens are open to visitors and I highly recommend that you visit if you're able. You know, your support of places like this that are located in small towns also gives support to the community. So it's absolutely worth it. I'll put the information for Avery Island in the show notes to help you easily find it to plan your visit. And I hope you'll enjoy learning about the fascinating history of this island and Tabasco and jungle gardens like I have. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure and like and rate and follow and do all the things for our podcast. It really does help us out. Links and any other important things you need to know will be in the show notes, so make sure to check those out. If you have ideas of topics you'd like to hear about or questions you want us to answer, drop those on the Pretend Cajun page on Facebook or Instagram. And if you're interested in theta healing or maybe a reading, head over to the website, which is pretendcajun.com, to schedule a time. In the meantime, Take care of yourself and each other. Until next time.